right, guys. So today I have David Alexander with me, who is an entrepreneur and businessman in St. Louis. He's actually my personal business mentor as well. And today we're just going to be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and all of that going on, as well as what David has going on with his work and kind of how uh, his upbringing has impacted his life. And so, yeah. So, David, welcome. <laughs> but uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I truly honor. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, just starting off, do you kind of want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do um, in the world of business and all of that? Yeah, so um, I am definitely really passionate about storytelling. And so that has led me into uh, entrepreneurship in the podcasting business. And so I help produce podcast shows for CEOs, um, companies, and doing some cool branded content as well that I'm excited uh, to share with some strategic partnerships that I've been working on. Um, so very, very, very passionate about um, mentoring, impact, uh, as a, a person of color, uh, seeing equity and, and having the opportunity to, you know, build a company where I'm able to connect and empower people has been um, very, very inspiring for me. Um, so that's a little bit of, you know, kind of my heart. And I'm really, really looking forward to the conversation. So thanks for the invitation. Oh, thanks for chatting with me today and uh, the name of your podcast so we can all follow along. <laughs> yeah. So my podcast is Social Origin. You guys can find me at socialorigin.net. Perfect. And I should say I do it, of course, with my twin brother, Daniel Alexander, uh, my sister-in-law, Mia Alexander. Shout out to both of them. Um, and they're in Australia. And so we interview innovators and influencers in America and Australia around culture, creativity, and business. And what was the idea behind Social Origin and where you got the name and kind of how do you come up with, you know, who you want to feature and what is the podcast mainly centered around? Yeah, so Social Origin really came from us recognizing there was a gap as creative leaders and myself and Daniel just recognized like we were living in these two different, you know, worlds, right? Literally him being in Australia, uh, he, he decided to move there to pursue music and songwriting um, and fell in love, got married. Uh, and when I was visiting him last year, we just recognized that we get to talk with incredible CEOs, executives, artists, um, sometimes celebrities, and wanted to showcase stories uh, as a way for us to bond as twins, but also as a way to reshape how people view um, people of color, essentially, and to be able to bring the vibrancy of that perspective has definitely been a part of um, launching our brand. So we don't, we don't speak that, but we recognize as we are who we are, um, we're able to bring naturally a, a different spice of life <laughs> as we showcase our uh, podcast. And yeah, we launched, so we launched last year, the podcast episode really, really for fun, essentially. And as a result, um, uh, the CEOs and folks that we were, we were connected with started asking us if we could help them. Um, so already we helped uh, David Stewart, 
through an organization called Biblical Business Training, launched his book, which David Stewart owns the, the largest African-American-owned company in the U.S., uh, private, private company in the U.S. generating over 13, I think they'll do 13 billion this year or something like that. So pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> so not, not a bad, not a bad first entrepreneurial year for us and the people that we get to work with. So very humbled and privileged by that opportunity. Yeah, no, seriously. And you just switched to full-time entrepreneurship. And so congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Excited you. to see what you do this upcoming rest of the year and then the next year. Um, but yeah, just kind of diving into kind of your background and all of that. So, um, you know, you have your twin brother, but what was like your experience uh, like growing up and just what was it like for you and your family? Yeah, so we grew up in uh, St. Louis. And basically, uh, you know, one thing I experienced early on was definitely, um, you know, experiencing gaps of, you know, essentially bullying at school. Um, and for me, uh, that was, uh, I wouldn't say it was racially motivated. It was uh, a variety of kids that would bully. And so that pulled, my mom decided to pull us out of school and homeschool us. Um, and right now, COVID, with COVID, everybody being homeschool, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so folks know, like, God bless our mamas for homeschooling. Um, and one of my early experiences with racism was um, at a pool. I remember uh, going and being with my brothers and wanting to play with some kids and and they just wouldn't play with us. And we couldn't understand why they wouldn't want to play with us. And they uh, they said, yeah, we, we can't play with you because you're black. Um, and so this was a very diverse community, one of the most diverse communities in St. Louis. Um, and so to experience that, it was the first time that I recognized that because of the color of my skin, um, some people did not and would not accept me. Yeah, for sure. That's um, really tough. So around w what age were you when that was all kind of starting? Yeah, I think we were pretty young, uh, any, anywhere between eight and 10. Yeah, so one of my, my earliest, earliest memories there of that. So was that kind of a conversation that came up with your parents or did that just kind of happen and you and you know you and your brothers your brothers just kind of just dealt with it in the moment or how was that kind of approached? So we dealt with it uh not in the moment. We talked with our parents about it later. I think we were all kind of shocked about it and didn't really know how to process, how to communicate. And so we shared it later with our parents. And of course, they were uh, upset about that experience. Um, and, you know, my parents did over time, you know, continue to look out for and be concerned for our safety, even to even, you know, the other day, like, uh, like yesterday, um, I got I, I was essentially woke up yesterday, at like 3am and and kind of uh, couldn't go go back to sleep. So I kind of worked all day. And then actually we had just had the call and you told me to take a nap, right? <laughs> we had, had a business call together and, uh, and I was like, okay, let me go take a quick nap. And I like accidentally just like was knocked out. 
you know your brother but, actually uh, messaged me he was like he, really? he was like have you heard from david i'm trying to get a hold of him and like he's like are you, took a nap? i was like i was like yeah we finished our call like three hours ago i think he's resting <laughs> <laughs> So they were like, they were like freaking out. They were like, they were like, oh my God, what is going on? Is David okay? He's yeah. over there at the house by himself. Like, did he go out and, and deal with protesters? Is he alive? And I was just like, you know, my mom was really concerned. And um, I understand that because of what, unfortunately, we're dealing with right now. And just down the street, there was um, looting and, um, you know, uh, challenges within my neighborhood. And so unfortunately, you know, as I was growing up, we were homeschooled and we went to a private school. Um, and you know, we were continually advised to not, to be very, very careful and vigilant, you know, as kids were going around the neighborhood, TPing folks and having a good time, putting up some tissue, like, it was like, hey, you know what? Uh, you guys don't have the luxury to participate in some of those uh, opportunities in neighborhoods that don't look like me, right? And so we were very, very careful. Um, but we did still run into things. You know, we still, you know, ran into challenges for sure in high school. For sure. So you did private school for high school then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then... You know, you're super close with your, your family, obviously. Um, you're super close with your mom. So just, you know, what is what was it like just kind of growing up with your family, in terms of family and not just like education, just, just family? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my parents are great, you know, and very humbled by them. Um, you know, my, my grandfather, um, really on, on, you know, both sides, my my parents' dads were uh, challenged. There was challenges on both sides. Um, but specifically on my mom's side, my grandfather was murdered. Um, he was killed from, um, he was a construction, he was in the construction industry and had a injury and he tried to sue the construction company at a time when you don't do that as a black man. And so he was shot and there was no justice. There was no one and maybe they looked into the case, but there was no uh, no names came up. So still don't know who who did that. So my mom had to grow up without a father as a result. Um, and so it is very unfortunate, um, you know, to recognize that, you know, I didn't have a grandfather that I could could know um, because of because of racism. Yeah. So how did that just a little deeper um just like not knowing you know how your grandfather's you know story and kind of how he passed how did that impact you and uh, your siblings uh, upbringing well you know i think a lot of people and uh a lot of people uh in the black community have experienced a lot of trauma and one thing that I respect a lot about my mother and um, especially, you know, black women are there. They are extremely uh, strong and resilient. Um, and so my mom had to, had to grow up quickly. She had to figure out how to defend and protect and 
um, you know, I did a Mother's Day poem for her and I uh, said she was a gazelle and a lioness. And uh, really swift, smart, shrewd, um, and strong is how I would describe my mother and many black women. My, my grandmother worked probably three jobs to provide for the family as a single mom, never, never remarried. So I just have so much respect um, for women of color. And I think a lot of times people look at that and can get intimidated because of the power that they can bring into, um, into the world. But I think it is, uh, it is a backdrop of understanding, like there's been a lot of trauma and they've had to be strong. Um, and so, um, so yeah, that's a little bit of, you know, of that, of that experience, uh, for me, um, you know, a lot of challenges have happened through my life and, and seeing it. So some, sometimes you, you become numb over time to the pain. Um, and I think people have to be able to process through it. And so for me, I've been able to process, thankfully, through poetry as a big outlet, um, you know, to, to release some of those emotions. Your poetry is yeah. awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Like, I remember we sat in Caldy's once before I moved to Chicago and yeah. you shared like a poem with me and it was just, I don't know. It's just so good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, but yeah, just kind of talking more about like present day, um, do you ever run into these, you know, daily common occurrences that you find to be offensive and, and racist or, you know, had a particularly racist uh, encounter that stood out or something like that? Yeah. So as we talk about racism, really, it is it is clearly um, it's, it's, it's clearly in all segments of society and culture in America. And unfortunately, like there's these flares where people recognize and get frustrated. And it seems like the flares happen where like, like right, we have a death in the black community and people see it now on social media, but it's always been there. Those pain, those pain points and those occurrences have continued um, since slavery. Um, and so I tell people it's kind of like reliving, it feels like reliving uh, a nightmare. Um, and so for me in my case, you know, I don't, I don't experience the racism from, from as much of the streets, but I've definitely experienced it in the boardrooms as a business leader. And I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, you know, I, I, I am very challenged by the police and what's, what's happening with the police, but I'm, I'm more, and I just posted this on LinkedIn. I said, I'm honestly more concerned about, frankly, churches and corporate corporations and their civic responsibility to impact communities because police's responsibility is to, you know, uphold the law, right? Um, and they have to live within those systems. I'm not making, I'm not saying I'm not concerned about police officers. We have to have uh, a more fair justice system and what we have, we are seeing is absolutely disgusting but we've got to dig into we've got to dig into the systems of what is keeping people back and so some of the examples that i've seen and i could just list them off over and over and over again is 
you know, talking with leaders about the fact that as a, as a black man inside the space of philanthropy, for example, I was just working a corporate role two years. And even as a person of color introduced to high power individuals that are responsible for giving away money, right? Like their whole job is to be good for the community. I got ghosted by a lot of corporate leaders in the philanthropy space, just not interested in having any conversation with me, even though I wasn't uh, requesting money or funds. My entire interest was impact, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there wasn't an interest point there and really seeing the impact. And so um, it's a subtle, it's kind of, I, I shouldn't even say it's subtle. It's, it's, it's pretty direct when someone, I meet someone through one individual and I meet that person and I have a conversation and it's, oh, well, yeah, David, and yeah, and great and good job, good for you. And that's awesome. And then I see that person at an event and then another event and they uh, act like they've never seen you before, you know? Oh my goodness. And we're talking about people responsible for millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, we look at, uh, you know, the space, it just, it, it, it's, it's very unfortunate, but that is, that is something that, you know, we experience, you know, or, um, you know, I, uh, I just had a conversation with a person today, uh, and I, uh, was pretty direct with them. I said, you know, I said, I talked with your father for like seven years trying to build relationship with your father, an influential man. A wealthy man and I said you know and this is in a church context setting I said I sat down with him at his church as an elder at his church and I said listen you know I'm not interested as much in the money to be honest with you I don't really need your money what I really need is a relationship and and I said I you know happy to meet with you guys but frankly I've wasted my time if I end this meeting and we don't have a coffee, right? right. I mean, that's how we met, right, Matea? We met yeah. over coffee. You yeah. know, <laughs> we met at the coffee shop. I mean, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty chill guy. I'm, I like <laughs> it's if I'm easy to connect with. Absolutely. And, and so for me, if someone is, and by the way, I went to, you know, I went to uh, high school with this individual's son. So there's multiple tiers connection, right? There's mm -hmm. the church connection. There's a corporate connection, right? He's part of a corporate organization. He's part of a church connection, church community. And his whole focus is doing good. And for like, I mean, I'm talking five, seven years, just couldn't, no connection, no interest. And so um, to me, that is the issue is, if it takes me seven years to build a conversation for someone who has a quote unquote desire for impact, we'll never move the needle forward. And that's why a lot of these things, you know, you know, can't, can't happen at the, the face, you know, I'll give you this other example. Um, I was in uh, and this is a police example is when I was in high school, uh, there was a police officer that I actually went to the gym with. And uh, I, I saw this. I, 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 we had a situation where 
that I was doing interviews for my high school, video interviews, and um, we had a car that was getting ready to get towed. And the police came really to protect the tow truck driver. And we're in high school and we're like, you know, getting the car towed and, you know, the police officer comes and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this is the police officer from my gym. Like, I'm okay. Like, thank God. Like, I, I got a guy. He's, you know, we can, we can have a conversation. Yeah. And I go, you know, I said, hey, man, how's it going? I put out my hand, you know, it looks in my hand like it's trash. I said, how's it going, Scott? He's like, hey, <gasps> hey. I said, I said, you know, my mom, Rosalind, from the gym. <laughs> oh. He goes, yeah, 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 I know, Rosalind. Right, right, right. What are you doing out here? And, and so, you know, in that situation now, now here's the reality. Now, maybe it could have escalated and been more violent. I don't know. He did, he did, you know, know my mom and then he recognized my face. Maybe he didn't recognize me. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's telling of the fact that we have, unfortunately, these two-faced people, right? Happy on one side, happy person, black, I see you as a black person. We're fine. I, these quote unquote, which is a terrible statement. I don't see color, all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And then you see him out on the street and you get treated like trash. And so really it's the simple humanity of people treating people with fairness on both sides. Right. And not putting up these masks. Right. And kind of, you know, you mentioned, you know, I don't see color. I've heard that a lot around going around. And so, yeah, do you want to speak a little bit to that and just, you know, how we can kind of reframe our minds around that concept and, you know, kind of thoughts on that? Well, as an artist, it's a very offensive statement. Mm -hmm. As a black person, as an artist, it's a very offensive statement. If I went to an art gallery and looked at something and I said, I don't see color. I just, well, it's like, well, what the freak, what are you looking at? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're not looking at the art. If I, you know, and so I, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell people this. So for me and my experience, right, when I got into my corporate role, I had people tell me, you know, I don't, I don't see color. Okay. All right. I'm like, okay, that's, that's not helpful to me. Versus when my brother Daniel in Australia got into his corporate role in Australia. Daniel, we just have to be honest. We we love the fact that you're black. We love the fact that you're a black American. And what were they saying? They were saying, we've seen your struggle. We've Mm. seen your challenges. We've seen your, your pain. And you've made it here to Australia. That is worth celebrating. We know your grit. We know your grind. And we welcome you here versus the passive statement, which is very, very, you know, protective of other people. And it's not celebratory of the black experience. It dismisses the black experience. What it says is, you know, it it doesn't matter what you've gone through or what that is. I just, you know, see you as as, uh, you know, anybody else off the street. It also is automatically denying their own biases. Um, and so I think that people need to see color. They need to see the challenges that black Americans have gone through um, to recognize and have sensitivity as well as an ability to celebrate and champion them as they're in their roles. Cause it, it, it is a challenge here. For sure. I've never 
had a like a conversation about you know that statement or com- yeah. like understood um i've heard both sides but never you know really like looked too much further into it so yeah. i mean i super appreciate you sharing that perspective i think it's yeah. really eye opening yeah. and then i mean kind of, you know, mentioning your brother in Australia and all of that. So, and you've been to Australia, you go visit yeah. your brother. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like when you go there or Daniel, you know, comes to the States, what differences um, do you see, you know, just beyond this, the celebration? Are there little, you know, daily interactions or anything or the way the cultures are there versus here? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you my next trip, I'm going to try and go over for about three months. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I'll tell you that. Um, the culture is, uh, so much more accepting of black Americans. And when you look at, when you look at actually, um, the history of, you know, poets and singers and folks that have had the privilege in the black community, uh, as artists to travel globally, they will tell you that it's night and day. Um, and that a lot of times they are celebrated. And we are celebrated more in other countries than where we are in our home land. And so um, Daniel, when he got over there, he said, bro, like, you won't believe the freedom over here. I said, the freedom? I'm free <laughs> right now. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, yeah, just wait. Just wait till you come over here. What are you talking about? And to walk around the streets not having no, no zero fear of police, zero fear of my life, zero fear of people looking at me, uh, you know, as somebody as a threat. Right now we have Corona, you know, the coronavirus. Everyone looks at everyone as a threat. So you walk around, you walk across the street and people walk to the other side of the street, right? Yeah. That's the, that's a black experience regularly. Mm. So people in America essentially are getting closer to the black experience, I believe, than they ever have right now by this whole social distancing. I've experienced social distancing a long time. Again, it took me seven years on that one relationship and I couldn't get, still couldn't get to the leader. And again, I wasn't asking him for anything. Um, And I could say case after case and situation after situation of people just not being willing to build a relationship. Um, So anyway, so there's that social distancing aspect. So back to the question, when I walk the streets in Australia, I feel more safe. I feel more welcome. I feel more celebrated. Um, and it's just easier for me to, um, to frankly connect with people. Uh, I, I told somebody earlier today, I said, when I got down in Australia after two weeks, I had more authentic and powerful conversations after two weeks with people in Dale's community than I had frankly, in like 20 years <laughs> here in St. Louis. Um, and the other thing that, you know, is crazy is the people in Australia recognize the issue of America and it's racism and America doesn't recognize it. Mm. Now, they're starting to recognize it, but I'll give you this. So Daniel was walking across the, walking around the streets in Australia. He's talking to a homeless guy in Australia. That guy goes, where are you from, mate? People in Australia, if they listen to this, they're going to get on me for my fake ass. <laughs> where, are you, where are you from, mate? And uh, he goes, I'm from, uh, I'm from St. Louis. I say, oh, St. Louis. Oh, my God. How's the racism there? Oh, my goodness. 
a homeless guy in Australia recognizing the racism of my city in the middle of the USA. Recognizing it. Mate, glad you made it out. That's his response, right? Versus here, and I mean, I'm talking even just this last year, folks, well, we really don't. You know, we really don't have a problem. We don't have a problem. Guys, if you deny that we have a problem, we'll never be able to move forward. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, just I feel like, you know, a lot of people are having those conversations these days. And so, you know, what's your perspective on the current Black Lives Matter movement going on? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I'm ex- I am thankful. There's there's kind of two sides on. There's well actually there's there's a lot of different angles around this. The Black Lives Matters is creating mass awareness, locally and globally, for the fact that uh, there has there have been these massive disparities in the Black community and the fact that we have. Um, we have issues that have to change to move us forward. We have pain that has to be resolved. We have wounds that need to be healed. Um, so it's, it's, it's pushing it. It's pushing it forward, pushing the boundaries. Um, it's very multi multi-dimensional. And I really do think that it takes everybody um, to see change and to move the needle forward. Um, so for me, my, my, um, perspective is, you know, you know, a lot of people look at Black Lives Matters and they look at the, they look at the civil disobedience and the looting and um, at points, the killing, right. Um, that have happened that have ended up in violence. Um, and I don't think anybody, most people would say those aspects are wrong. The aspects of violence, the aspects of, um, the aspects that would take a business owner, you know, I was looking at collaborating with a business to do a shoot. And uh, basically the collaboration was shut down because of uh, the challenges that they were, that that they were fearful of their business getting looted. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so this, these issues, you know, they really, really are real. So I see kind of both challenges or both, you know, both, areas that folks kind of look at when they look at this perspective of black lives matter. But um, to me, uh, I'm looking at it and I'm grateful for the awareness that it's bringing to light. Um, And anything that we see that's angry is telling of the symptoms of the bigger issues that have to be resolved. Um, So I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful that people this time really start to wake up and decide to make a change and to make a difference. Absolutely. So just going off of that, you know, how can we moving forward and taking in all of this information, you know, being thrown at us at this time, um, move forward and better support the black community? Thank you for that question. Um, There's, there's several opportunities, but what I really believe, uh, is important and i actually have this written down it's read listen and act so first thing is education people are very very uneducated about the history of america the history of black people um there's a book i recommend called cry like a man and it gives an example of one uh 
uh, man that has gone through uh, murders, killings, uh, gone through forgiveness, gone through the process of grieving that I believe has a very dynamic perspective. Strength to Love by Dr. Martin Luther King is another book I recommend. And um, I just posted this on social media as well is the book by Jeremy, a man named Jeremy Cowart. He's a white mm-hmm. man, but he wrote a book um, called I'm Possible. He adopted two kids from Haiti and has done um, really a lot of work in humanitarian art through photography and uh, his work as a graphic designer, illustrator. And what his book does is it, it gets people to imagine what they can do when they think outside the box, right? So for for me, I think it's very, very important to start with the education. Um, for that book with Jeremy, you know, I think about the, a situation I was talking with a, with a leader running a billion dollar company, right? Billion dollar company. And, you know, David, I said, you know, he's like, David, what can I do? I said, what can I do? Dog, you got thousands of employees and you do over a billion dollars in revenue. There's a lot of stuff you can do. But what was happening? He was having a cap of his mindset, mm. right? So if people get educated, they can start to look at the systems. They can start dealing with it. And then they can actually move forward. Secondly, they need to listen, right? So dealing with a lot of people, uh, again, you know, like I was talking to one person, an organization, a foundation, again, it's like a $1.4 billion. They're trying to give away $1.4 billion. The whole organization is white. And I'm like, I need to talk to the guy. I need to talk to the main guy. Well, it's going to be difficult to talk to him, David. I get it, but it shouldn't be difficult because as far as I'm looking at it, you know, it's like it's a bad leadership move. If you have, it's like this. It's like I told somebody the other day. I, t- I told somebody, I think today, actually. I've had so many conversations around. I said, it's like if I had a, a dang daggone Chinese restaurant, I'm going to make some Chinese food. But guess what? I'm not going to ask any Chinese people what they think about the food, and I'm not going to employ any of them. <laughs> That'd be a stupid idea, right? Yeah. Like if I decided I'm going to open up a soul food kitchen, <laughs> And I'm a white guy and I don't have any black people taste the food or experience the food. We're good to go. We're in business. That's a bad idea. Yeah. So what a lot of people don't think about is they're missing leadership principles. You would never go and decide to build a business without having basic things and structure. You would, you would never go, uh, to, uh, yeah, you just wouldn't you you wouldn't do it. So I could kind of go through this, but and there's so much to talk about. I'll give this, you know, one example as well as I was talking with a bank executive, a bank executive last year or two years ago, and I was trying to explain to her the economic negative impact of racism. I said, listen, the problem is we can't get businesses down here because of the reality of fear. And the reality of the racial challenges that won't allow people to come to the downtown district. Well, I just, I don't believe that. I just don't. I mean, she was so adamantly offended. And, and it was offensive because, she, and again, this is the, why I'm on this point. And listen, she wasn't willing to listen. 
Mm. Okay. So now all of a sudden you got an issue where systemically the philanthropy organizations that control billions of dollars are run a hundred percent by white people, not engaging black people to listen the communities that they, a lot of times are designed to serve as well as, serve as, well as minority communities. And even on a one-on-one -on -one level, a heart level, when I get into the space of philanthropy, they're not willing to listen to me. And again, I'm not, it's not like I'm somebody off the street. I've had a nonprofit experience. I've had corporate experience. I've dealt with a lot of CEOs. I'm not, you know, um, I'm not trying to say I'm perfect, but I can bring value and perspective, but people are not willing to listen. So my last state, my last piece of advice is acting. So we kind of, again, we got to read, you got to get educated, you got to listen, be willing to have a heart that's open to receive, and you got to then be willing to act. So I believe that it's really important to act on, um, you know, things that are small wins. Get connected to one individual, right? Um, get connected to somebody and support them. I like, I'm seeing a lot of people do the giving, giving to these organizations, these big organizations, which I appreciate that. But I'm also like, okay, what happens when all this gets done? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to commit some of your philanthropic giving to people of color? So like right now I'm looking at a person of color that tr transitioned 1500 which isn't that much money, but to transition 1500 of my giving budget to that individual, right? And then to increase my giving budget as well overall and be very, very conscious of making sure that my spend in philanthropy is diverse and targeted, not just at organizations, but individuals that are being actively part of the solution. No, that's like, that's super helpful. And just kind of going back to listen, a question that kind of popped up for me is, you know, <laughs> these conversations can be super frustrating. It can be, you know, frustrating to try and help people see. And so just from experience or, you know, some talk that you might have, you know, had conversations with other people. How can we, you know, best try and get people to understand, you know, the black community, what they're going through, that perspective, and how can we effectively communicate? Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the, it's, again, I think it's, I think what I've been finding to be more effective is being is applying communication principles that go across the board that people can kind of understand right it's like get how do you get people abc bite-sized chunks to get beyond um the offense right i deal with a lot of people that are very offensive so i've learned to adapt my communication in a language that they can understand right Right. So they understand numbers, they understand burnings, right? They understand like we now we people and that's the thing, you know, Black Lives Matter people can, you know, say what they want to say about it, but the reality is people understand very quickly like this impacts the economy. This impacts businesses, this impacts everyone, right? It's always impacted everyone. So when I talk, you know, I'm like, okay, let's look at, you know, I go for example, I get as specific as granular as industry. So I said, okay, let's look at the construction industry. Every construction industry over a billion dollars is going to lose $100 million per year based on the lack of talent, right? So mm -hmm. they're losing a lot of money by not engaging minority 
leaders to be mm. in the talent pool. Those are the same communities that have no uh, opportunity to, to thrive. They have no jobs. So they're creating their own entrepreneurial ecosystems. I talk about the example of, uh, you know, the example of, uh, again, the lack of entrepreneurial ecosystems that then create drugs, right? People, people have to get some money somehow. So now there's no jobs, there's no other way of commerce. So people are pulling out drugs, right? Those drugs then go into the white communities. So folks that think that it's not affecting them, I have to get them to understand, guys, this affects you. This affects your kids. Where do you, where do you think these drugs are coming from? Well, why, why are these people providing the drugs? What's going on with them? Well, it's because these communities have been left with nothing. And so they're simply surviving. When, I, when, you, when we can communicate with people, not, not just on the emotion, but on the intellect of understanding the challenges that these gaps and systemic issues impact their families, then we can start getting people to have an open heart to listen, to then move forward in action to actually see change. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, And then, yeah, moving on to act. I just, I thought of another question. (laughs) And so, no, just, it's interesting. I haven't, you know, really stopped to think about, you know, we are, you know, signing petitions and donating to these large organizations. And so, I mean, it is a movement. So unfortunately, you know, (laughs) the hype will end at some point. And so how can we keep the momentum going? How can we continue to, you know, support this Black Lives Matter movement, you know, on a smaller scale once the movement, the large movement, you know, kind of dwindles down. Yeah. I'd say be committed to uh, champion advocating for a few. Um, You know, a lot of the relational process that, uh, and I think some people, you know, they'll have a bigger, some people have a bigger impact. I'm called to make a I feel called to make a large impact. And so, you know, I'm looking and planning for things already 2022, right? (laughs) So legitimately, I'm like, I'm scaling my business intentionally and looking at uh, strategic relationships and opportunities in 2022 that I think would be effective on a national scale. But for uh, between between any of that, I have to, and I think everyone has to look at what are the individual opportunities that you know each of us can can create and to see change, um, to love people, to connect with people, to say you ha- you are here, and I want to connect you to my father or to this job or this internship, et cetera, to help move the ball forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, no, yeah. thanks for sharing all these tips. It's been, you know, really eye-opening, and I super appreciate your time. Yeah, um, I want to open the floor up to any final thoughts or anything you want to share. Or thanks. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, I want people, I want people to, to recognize, you know, the simplicity of of really love um, and the simplicity of personal change. When we look into ourselves personally, right? The depths of who we are, 
um, and we start to change ourselves, we'll have more compassion for the other people around us. This, this happens on all sides of the aisle. This happens between every race. If we can personally look in, you know, the uh, reality is it impacts this racism, impacts the black community, it impacts the Korean community, it impacts the Hispanic community, it impacts the international global community. As I just had someone recently, you know, tell me a, a story where he was an entrepreneur that came to St. Louis that ended up um, losing everything. And it really was because of his his race out not looking white, right? And it just broke my heart because this is a man that started a nonprofit, had a business, made an impact on me, actually inspired my brother to go to Australia. And he found himself in East St. Louis in a prison cell unjustly and lost everything because of the racism of this country. Uh, and that is not the America I want. And that's not the America I want for my kids. Uh, and it's just been too long. And we're just, we, we've, we've got to have the heart change to see change. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing today. And where can we find you on social? Where can we support you and your brother and, you know, your business and everything? <laughs> Thank you. Well, you guys can check us out on Instagram at Social Origin. Uh, I'm actually taking a break on social media right now for my mental health, but you can follow me still at David J. Alexander underscore. I'll be back uh, up. Um, our website is www.socialorigin.net. And also feel free to check out uh, my brother's Instagram, uh, Daniel J. Alexander. And, uh, yeah, I would love to connect. Thank you so much, Matea. This was an incredible interview and uh, very encouraged by you and everything um, that you're doing to promote uh, the cause of impacting the, the Black community and, of course, uh, all communities um, to move us forward. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you again for your time and your insight. Um, yeah, I, thank you guys so much for joining our conversation today. I hope you found David's words of wisdom super helpful and can use them to move forward with the Black Lives Movement. <laughs>